welcome to Originality, the podcast where we talk about and explore the roots of creativity and creative genius. I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims, and I am joined by Kay Tempest Bradford. Hi, Tempest. Oh my God. We haven't spoken to each other in so long. Oh my God. Like two weeks. <laughs> Our lives are so busy. It's been forever. So busy. They are. How is your residence going? Um, It is not going as uh, NaNoWriMo-y as I thought it would. I was like, I'm going to write 2,000 words a day. No. Um, But actually, I... I did come to the conclusion, though, that, first of all, I didn't necessarily need to write 2,000 words a day. That was just like a thing that I was like, I should do that Mm -hmm. because But also that writing a whole bunch of words today is not actually the useful metric that I should be judging this by. Um, At some point, I was like, you know, I am in this house all by myself, and it is the first time that I have been in a space all by myself for an extended period of time for three years. And that actually is the most valuable aspect of this, um, other than like having the time to write. So that was a really interesting revelation. So I have been like doing things that I can only do, or I only really feel comfortable doing when I'm by myself. So that's pretty awesome. I I bet you can, or at least I think the experience for me would be like being able to hear myself think clearly for the first time in a while. Does that make sense? It does. Although I don't know if I'm thinking clearly. <laughs> I don't. Okay. I wouldn't, put, I wouldn't necessarily say that. <laughs> we'll go that far. Um, I think maybe we should do a quick NaNoWriMo check-in because I said I was going to write for 30 minutes every day during NaNoWriMo. And I totally have not written for 30 minutes every day Gasp. during the month of November. Uh, I know. It's... It's been a really challenging month for a lot of reasons. And, you know, I've been I've been productive on a lot of other things, but that is one thing I have not done. Um, So as we're recording this, the Indiegogo that I've been kind of project managing, campaign managing is almost done. We've got like literally 33 hours left on the campaign, I think. Um, No, it's more than that. It's it's more than that. It's just just over forty eight hours, I guess. Um, once that's done, I think uh, I'll feel um, like I have a lot more time to to dedicate to um, app launch map to my business to writing to maybe even cleaning the house a little bit. But uh, managing a crowdfunding campaign is pretty intense uh, in yeah, ways that I didn't anticipate. Yeah. So yeah, that's been that's been my focus. So um, and. You know, when this episode goes out, it will be over and I will be doing a happy dance because I'm kind of I'm as as much fun as it's been and as exciting as it's been to have, you know, support of my friends and and my community. uh, I'm just kind of ready to have that stress over and done with. Yep. I I know that feeling. And, And I say this as I'm about to go into a time where I'm about to be involved in several different fundraising projects. Um. Writing the other is going to do a big end of the year fundraiser so that we can get enough money for our scholarship fund for next year. We're going to try to fund all oh. of next year at once. Um, and that's going to be interesting. And hopefully that will be up by the end of November. I'm I'm going to try to get it out by the end of this week. So by the time this episode goes up, if I have reached my goal, uh, it will be only a couple of days until that fundraiser begins. So you can, if you are interested in, in checking that out, you can look at uh, writingtheother.com to see if we have it up. The other... Um, thing I'm probably going to be doing a lot of fundraising work for is the Carl Brandon Society. I'm on the board of that organization and we're going to be doing big fundraisers, I believe. I don't know exactly, we don't have a timeline or anything like that, but we have been just talking about um, doing a fundraiser here at the end of the year. And then on a personal note, I am also going to probably launch a fundraiser sometime, maybe this month, maybe next month, that'll run until February uh, to raise enough funds so that I can go to Egypt for a research trip. So, mm. so yeah, so that's about to be my life. That's exciting. You don't, you can't see my face right now, but I'm making the face of that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that super stressful? Maybe. 
Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting. Maybe, maybe this is something to talk about. I mean, we've talked about Patreon, um, and, and getting money that way in the past. Um, but maybe this is another, uh, thing that we can talk about once kind of, we both have it behind us is a larger scale fundraising and, uh, I don't know what we've learned and, uh, what we would never, ever do again. I don't know. Yeah. That would definitely be something to talk about. I know it's it's a lot of, there is just a lot of stuff. So, yeah. But today we have other cool things to talk about, so. We do. You want to you wanna talk, talk about it, set us up? Sure. Um, for this episode, I interviewed a friend of mine, a writer and illustrator named Nyla Magruder. And uh, I'm going to let her introduce herself and her work. Um, my name is Nyla Magruder. I am a children's book author. Uh, most recently, I published How to Find a Fox, which is a picture book. And uh, my first graphic novel, MFK, just released a couple of months ago and is now in bookstores. Um, I also participated in an anthology called All Out. That releases in February 2018, and that is um, the never-before-told queer stories of teenagers in history. It's it's fiction. And I am also working on a middle-grade graphic novel called Creaky Acres, which is about horseback riding, and that releases in 2019. Holy busy, Batman. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and and I got a chance to see both of Nyla's books um, recently because I hadn't seen How to Find a Fox um, when it first came out, but I did get to see MFK shortly after it came out. And they're both like amazing. And the thing that always sort of strikes me is because I know a lot of writers, obviously, I don't necessarily know a lot of people who do visual art. And it like reading through... Um, how to find a fox and being like, wait a minute, not only did Nyla write this, she drew, <laughs> she drew all of this art. Like, this is amazing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I often think of like art, visual art, drawing and stuff like that and writing as two different things. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to her and, um, and just find out like you know, where her interest in both came from and, and other sort of nuggets of, I don't know, inspirational awesomeness. Um, so yeah, so I started out by, by asking her just like, you know, which one of the two came first, if, if they came separately. And, um, she was telling me that, no, actually they both, uh, came about at about the same time. I guess it was art, but they kind of manifested around the same time. I and I was I was really really young when I got interested in both. Uh, from about five years old, like I was very uh, very interested in animation and illustration, you know, like in children's books and things. And I loved drawing. I loved uh, copying uh, art that I saw on TV and in books. And I was really driven to get better at it and learn, you know, how to be an artist. But around the same time, you know, in first grade, we started having writing, uh, you know, writing assignments. And I wrote a story when I was in first grade that my teacher raved over. It was just like a one page, like, I don't know, 30 words, (laughs) but my teacher was so excited and I got like a wow and a star sticker and all this stuff on my, on my paper. And I was, um, I, I, I was encouraged by that. And so I've always written, I've always drawn, but, you know, going through, going through school, growing up, I think it was always a pipe dream for me, but I didn't think I'd actually do it for a living. So, you know, getting to do it now is pretty exciting. I feel like a lot of artists think that way, that they're like, this is a thing I love. How could somebody pay me for that? Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the reality is it, it's a challenge unless you really are privileged or luck into it, but it is totally possible. It is. But, and also I feel like there is a way in which 
some sometimes you know people do end up like finding their way into doing something for a living um they stumble upon it and sometimes like people go i'm totally going to do that for a living but a lot of it just depends on the kind of situation that you're in uh, whether or not that happens to you sort of earlier in life or later in life um you know your your environment has so much to do with that and i think that that's a thing that often doesn't get talked about enough because very often when people talk about artists or they're extolling, you know, great artists, genius artists or whatever, they're like, even though he had all these obstacles in front of him, he was able to overcome them in order to become the amazing genius that he is. Oh. You're like, mm-hmm, that's, that's lovely. But sometimes, first of all, some obstacles can be overcome and some mm, are harder to overcome. And also there has to be an idea in your mind that certain obstacles are able to be overcome, which is not always something that everybody has, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I don't know if it makes sense to everybody. Yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense. Well, and I want to sort of get into to that about like the ha- finding the opportunities to do the thing that you love in just a second, because Nyla and I talked about that. But before that, I want to um, play for you the part of our talk where we talked about writers uh, learning about doing visual art. And this came from a conversation that I had with Nyla and other friends who who she'll mention about things that writers can learn from the way that visual artists know how to observe the world. Um, And like, I'm, I'm not articulating it very well because for me, like this is still like something that is sort of like, clicking in my head. I'm still thinking it over this whole conversation, but, you know, I was thinking about whether or not some artists can, some writers can benefit from learning what artists learn about drawing. And so I asked Nyla about that and just about like, you know, how, what writers can benefit from, from the point of view of visual artists. Well, first I think everybody can benefit from learning how to draw. Like, the, you know, the conceit that most people have is that, oh, I can't draw. I was never very good at it. I don't have that talent. And I don't like to think of drawing as a talent. It's a skill that you learn. I liken it to writing. Like we all learn how to write in school. So we all, we all, pretty much everyone knows how to write. Everyone who's gone through school knows pretty much how to write because it's a necessary part of communication in our culture. But for some reason in America specifically, art is not given that that same consideration. Art is not considered vital to communication. So once you get through elementary school, it kind of, it becomes an elective. It kind of falls out of our, our education system. So I think if everybody, if people like gave as much attention to drawing as they did writing, then, you know, they would have that aptitude. It's not something that's unattainable. So, you know, I think it's a skill that writers especially would benefit from even just exploring, you know, especially especially if they're writers collaborating in visual media. So like comics, um, picture books, you know, having that understanding of what the visual process is, I think can be very helpful as a collaborator, but even prose writers, you know, like just novels, um, especially uh, children's literature, there there's a benefit there to being being able to think visually as you're writing. And this is really a discussion that I, that originated with Grace Fong, who was also an illustrator and writer. Um, she, this is kind of something that she brought up, which made me think about it more. But she explains the importance of visual metaphor in fiction and how like creating visual symbolism within a story gives readers something to latch onto, something that they can latch onto visually. 
Um, some really good examples of this are Victoria Schwab and the Shades of Magic series. And she, we, you know, we recently heard her speak about this at the Sirens conference. Uh, she, she described uh, her main three characters. All each each have a symbol. Um, Kells is his coat. Lila's is her mask and rise is his crown. And, you know, these are, these are very, you know, effective symbols that make these characters memorable, that make them distinct from one another. Another classic example is Harry Potter, JK Rowling. All the houses not only have their own color, but also like an animal, a, an animal symbol. So, and, you know, and it's a very, you know, the houses are a very organized system within the world, but this visual, um, like this visual component is what really makes it latch onto readers' minds. And I think, I think that's kind of the key to a lot of major franchises we have is that they have some visual component that's easy easy to translate to visual media. So, you know, it's easy for artists to do fan art of. It's easy for, you know, directors to turn into movies. Like Avatar The Last Airbender is another example of a story that has, and you know, and this is a cartoon, so of course it needs... It needs that visual uh, representation that's already built in, but you know the types of bending are very visually based and memorable. So th- this is a really interesting idea to me. It's a really interesting thought to me. Um, I struggle to write fiction, and I I wonder if part of the reason I struggle so much with writing fiction is because I actually don't have a visual like memory. So um, I don't know, it's probably a year or so ago, there was this article circulating around about how, um, like if I say a beach, if I, if I describe a beach, if I say, okay, so uh, white sand, blue water, palm trees, pina colada, like, do you actually see that? Can you actually visualize that? I can't. If someone says blue circle, do you actually see a blue circle? I don't. Um, I get the concept of it. I understand conceptually what you're talking about, but I don't actually visualize that. And I'm wondering if that's part of the reason why fiction is not something that I've ever really been able to write well. That's really interesting. And so when when people say, you know, white sand, blue water, pina colada, like it, what happens in your brain? Like you just like understand that those things are there, but you cannot imagine them. Right. I don't I don't see them. Interesting. I don't. You, some people were talking about how and it was this was a huge, I actually cried over this. No joke. I actually cried over this because it feels, it sounds like such an amazing experience that I'm missing out on by not having that. And some people were going so far as like, yeah, if, if you talk to me about a beach, if you say, you know, blue water, white sand, palm tree, I can hear the water and smell the ocean. And I'm like, what the heck? I feel like I'm kind of genetically short shrifted here. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, and and I think that I I have heard or seen articles, not that particular one that you were talking about, but about this, about just the the different way that some people's brains work. Some people just don't have that internal visual, like inner eye thing that other people have. Um, and and I don't know if that necessarily is a block to your fiction, but if Yes, if you have trouble sort of visualizing what people are doing in the scene that you're writing, I can see how that might make fiction hard for you because that is the thing that allows me to be able to go forward in a scene. It's just like picturing people doing the things Mm -hmm. that I say that they're doing. And sometimes I need it to such an extent that I will literally go out and look at pictures of people until I find a person who looks kind of like what I envision my characters to look like and then use that picture as a reference for making them real in my head. Yeah. 
Cause I, that's interesting. I really have to, I, um, it, and oftentimes they're like actors, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I remember somebody saying, well, you shouldn't cast your book in your head. Cause that's silly and terrible and blah, blah, blah. Like some terrible reason why they thought that, that one shouldn't do that. But I stopped listening to that person, whoever they were, um, who said those things. Once I realized that it's not necessarily about me being like, oh, if this actor can't play this role in the movie that will eventually be made of my book, ha ha ha, then I'll never be able to live again. No, it's just because I really just need to be able to see in my head that person moving through the scene and it helps if I have an actual person. Um, And I don't necessarily need need this when I'm reading. Like if I'm reading a book that's uh, been turned into a TV or a movie series, then yeah, I I will usually picture like those actors in my head doing the things that being done in the book. But if I, if there's, doesn't exist that kind of thing that doesn't mess with my ability to sort of see what's going on. The seeing of it is a little less precise, Mm -hmm. but I can still see it in my mind's eye. So, so when you read books, now this actually, I'm very interested in this. When you read books, you're not picturing what's going on with these characters and such in your head. No. And I think this is why I like character driven stories more than action driven stories. So like I'll read a science fiction book and it'll be like, this ship was doing blah, blah, blah. And this ship was doing this other thing. And this ship was doing another thing. And it's just like, that mean, it means nothing to me because I don't see it. I don't enjoy those types of scenes. I'm actually almost done with, um, Victoria Schwab's books. Um, Right now, I, I mean, I'll probably finish the last one today and and there's kind of this action scene and, you know, so-and-so kicked with their left foot and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I really don't, I don't care. Like it, it doesn't matter to me. It's the character notes within the fight that matter to me, but the actual machinations of what they're doing, like it, it literally does not matter to me. I, I can't picture it. That's interesting. Okay. Um, I, I also don't like overly actiony things going on. I mean, other than like explaining how, oh, the characters are doing this as they go to this place or whatever. But I, I'm pretty sure that because early on I had a, a writing teacher who said, you know, you don't need to explain the minute details of what this person is doing as they cross the room, you know, cause that is another thing that, that many authors will do. Like he went over to the desk and he picks up the pencil with his right hand and he walked over to the piece of paper and he picked that up with his left hand. And then he was, I was like, yeah. <laughs> we don't, we don't necessarily need all that detail. Like, but, but it's, I guess it's along the lines of, um, this is a thing that I have been actually talking to my students a lot about recently in terms of description, not only description of characters, but also just description of what's going on in the scene. Um, and, and I got that. Um, this is so funny because I'm pretty sure I've said this on this podcast before because I say it all the time, but Samuel Delaney says, <laughs> my students are so tired of hearing that phrase. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you've uttered that phrase at least. Oh yes. Um, that, that basically when you are, trying to envision a scene as a writer, like you envision it in all the glorious detail that it is. Like, you know, what's in the room and who's in the room and what they're wearing and what's on the desk. And, you know, you see all the details. He's like, picture it perfectly like that. And he's like, but then only write down the things that impact your character especially if it's from a character's viewpoint. But even in the third person, when you're sort of stepping outside of the character and you're like the narrator saying, like, you don't say everything, every single thing that happens, every single thing that's in the room. You talk about the things that are impactful at that moment, in that scene, to your character, what's going on, because then you, those are the only things that really need mentioning. Um, And it's the same with like character descriptions, even the same with like characterization. Like you don't need to like list all the things that matter to your character internally in chapter one. You list all the things that matter to your character internally at that moment. Yeah. And and I think that also goes to showing and not telling too is, you know, nobody, well, there are people who probably want to read that, but like if you can, coming from the person who doesn't actually visualize things like this, but if you can, um, show somebody through what the character is doing, uh, what they're doing as opposed to uh, describing it, like, you know, picking up the piece of paper or whatever, like they need to know 
they sat at the desk and and pulled out their fanciest pen because it was going to be a fancy letter or whatever. Um, but like showing them doing that instead of like telling, you know, uh, I don't know. <laughs> does does do you see the connection that I'm trying to make? Is, yes. Can you can you make that for me more better? I can. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> well, like because the whole thing is um, with show don't tell, and I, I talk to my students about this a lot too. Is that a lot of people don't even really understand what show don't tell means. They just think it means that you're not supposed to have exposition. And so then you'll have mm-hmm. like constant endless critiques from terrible critiquers who are like, this is some exposition and you can't have that. You need to no. It's like, what it is is that everything needs to be in there for the purpose of illuminating something. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have to be illuminating something, the most important thing about that character at every time, but it has to be there giving the audience information in a way that the audience is craving that information. So you can totally have some exposition about a thing, but that exposition has to be well-written and it has to be delivering information that the audience wants to know at that moment. And so when when you can employ the show, don't tell, it's really more about the, you know, if, if I'm going to give you this information and exposition, exposition needs to be the best way for me to give you this information. But a lot of times when, when bad writers or not bad writers, when writers employ it badly, they're doing it in such a way that it's not like the way that the audience wants that information. Sometimes the audience wants that information through the character's actions through what they're doing and, and how they're feeling about what they're doing in a scene and not exposition. And so, yeah, it's like finding that sweet spot is apparently very hard because a lot of writers don't seem to be able to do it. Um, but I think that it's, it's made harder by um, misunderstandings of what show don't tell actually means. But as, as a sort of appellation, like once you actually understand what it means and, and it's not that exposition is bad, then it's, that's good to apply to like what's going on. Is this the best way to convey this information? Is it through a scene? Is it through exposition? And usually like internal character, like big internal character things are not necessarily done through exposition, but through showing what it is the characters do and how they act and how they react and stuff like that. Thank you. And I kind of derailed us from um, Nyla's point about um, using art uh, to understand storytelling better, uh, which I I think is super valuable, whether it's, um, you know, I'm going to say like, I would have to learn how to draw much better than stick figures, I think, in order to do that. But I think beyond kind of understanding the um, the process. I think this is another tool in the toolbox for different perspectives and different ways to look at things and using different parts of your brain and examining things in ways that you wouldn't have were you not trying to draw them or you know paint them or or whatever that artistic medium is. Mm-hmm. And you know, I Nyla said that, you know, it's, it's good for writers to like learn the basics of drawing. I agree with that. I've been drawing things. They're terrible. Um, they keep drawing them, but you know, it's, um, it's just a lot of learning how to observe, you know, the power of observation is, I mean, it's something that is, is often talked about when people say, oh, you become a writer, you have to learn how to look at other people and things and whatever. And that's true. But I don't know that a lot of writers necessarily have been taught how to observe well, you know, so. No. So, yeah, I think that even learning, like, very, very basic drawing skills can be useful to uh, an author. Um, Just like learning a lot of other basic skills can be, skills in art can be useful to, like, all kinds of different artists, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It totally does. Yeah. Totally does. Um, So, yeah, I, so... Whatever you take away from this, take away, go, go out and find a basic drawing class or even like YouTube, YouTube, some basic drawing lessons. That's what I say. Yeah. Or even, um, I have a couple of books here that I haven't actually started using. So I thought with my bullet journal, um, that I would like to occasionally doodle in there. But again, because I'm not, I'm not a visual thinker like that, like I have to see it. 
um, I got some books to help me doodle. Um, and there, I have two of them and I think maybe there will be more, I don't know, but they're called botanical line drawings. So it's just like drawing different plants, um, which I thought would be cute in my bullet journal. So, um, even if it's just something like basic, like ideas for doodling or zentangling or, or whatever to get you started and maybe help you feel confident, that might be a place to begin. Yeah, definitely. I tried zentangling, but I kept getting it incorrect and I I ran away. How, how did you get it incorrect? Because <laughs> I couldn't make all the lines go where I wanted them to go. Yeah. That's the biggest I, I, I problem I have with drawing. I'm like, do this mm-hmm. hand. And my hand is like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> Your hand and my hand right. are... Uh, What's going on? ...are birds of a feather yeah. something. Yeah. Well, but yeah. I, I did discover something when... Um, During Inktober, I was trying to draw something um, and I didn't do a drawing every day, but I did several drawings with a thought of like trying to do it every day. And I was drawing the same image over and over again. It was an image that I'd seen in my mind. And I was like, let me, let me render this. And I had started doing it on my phone because I have a Galaxy Note phone. So I have a stylus on my phone that I used to write. And so I was doing a lot of the drawings with the stylus and I was doing okay with the stylus, but then I got back to my actual pens because this is when I was uh, in California doing research, I didn't take all my stuff with me, but I have all my stuff with me now. So I have my pens, I have a lot of markers, I have like some pencils and whatnot. And when I started doing that same drawing using the pens and the pencils and the markers, it was actually, I was actually much more able to draw what I was thinking of drawing. And I was like, oh, I wouldn't have thought that there would be such a vast difference in my ability to draw going from like a stylus on a screen to a pen on paper, but there is. Because there's not like a huge, huge difference between my handwriting in those two cases. Um, But the actual like, I guess it's because of like fine motor skills and I'm more able to control when I'm using something that is actually pen on paper as opposed to Mm -hmm. stylus on screen. I can see that. I can see that. Well, I want to uh, play this other bit from Nyla because this is, uh, um, it, it hooked into something that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of like my life as an artist. Um, and it's when um, I asked her when she did decide that, you know, her pipe dream could be a real thing. Um, because in addition to being, a, you know, a writer and illustrator, she does animation and she's um, worked in animation houses. And so I was like, what, what set you on that path to being able to like draw for a living? So... I wanted to work in animation. Like when I was 12 years old, I think uh, they released Pencil Test of the Lion King to promote it. And I was so fascinated. Like from that moment, I knew I wanted to work in animation. But I lived in Maryland. I lived really far from the film industry and I really didn't understand how you worked in animation. I thought that was just something that, you know, uh, really smart and sophisticated grown-ups got to do, but I was just a 12-year-old. So, well, you know, going through school, I really didn't understand how you worked in animation. And then my junior year, I was in a an SAT prep class, and one of our assignments was to profile a college. And so my partner and I went to the University of the Arts, and I think that was my idea it was just an excuse for me to check out this art school and they had an animation program. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you can study animation in college. And that kind of changed everything for me. Like leading up to that point, I knew I was probably going to go into music or go into something practical like accounting or computer science. Those are things my mom wanted me to do. And I, you know, I really had no other ideas, but from like that moment on, I was like, no, I want to be an artist. And so that, you know, that kind of became my focus, just getting into the animation industry. I love this story um, in part because that was sort of what happened to me. Like I, well, when I went to college for music, I actually, I knew full well that like one could go to college for music. But what I didn't, the reason why I went to the college that I went to is because for a long time, I was like, I'm not going to go to college. My mother, bless her, 
looked at me and she was like, okay, whatever you want. I'm sure internally she was screaming. Um, it's like, <laughs> what? Um, but I was like really convinced at the time. And this was when I was like very early in high school, uh, that I wasn't, I didn't have, uh, the grades to get into college and I didn't, have what it took to do all the work that college seemed to be. I had like a lot of really weird ideas about how much work things took when I was young. Um, but then I, because of a presentation at our school, I was like, oh, I want to be a music engineer. And I didn't actually end up really looking um, or, or seriously considering the technical college that came to our school. They introduced us to this idea because I found out that they weren't actually a very good school. But I found out that like music engineering was something that they taught in college. And I was like, oh, well, I could do that. And so then I went to college. Um, but in the process, like in between me, like looking at colleges to see which ones of them had music engineering uh, majors and then actually applying to college, I had actually decided that I wanted to go ahead and apply for music. And so that's, but I only looked then at the colleges that I had chosen for that other thing, um, which narrowed my choices down drastically actually. Um, and so, so yeah, it was, that was like a sort of weird way. But the thing is that I, I have a lot, I, I've, I said I went to college for music. I sang and I played an instrument and I had been trained in piano. Um, the instrument that I played really well was the clarinet though. And I ended up not graduating from the music department of my school because I became very, very frustrated with um, our, the, the people who were in charge of our department, the people who were in charge of our particular school within the university. Um, and, and I was just like, I don't ever want to have to deal with people like this. If, if this is what it means to be a professional singer, then like, screw this, I'm, I'm going elsewhere. But, and one of the frustrations that I had was, is that they really were very narrow about what we were allowed to, to learn. Um, one example is that I really didn't want to be in the choir that they, they wanted to require us to be in because I had been in choir singing college level music all through high school because I went to a performing arts school. So we were singing the same terrible songs and doing the same terrible performances. And I was just like, this is not for me. But they kept insisting that we had to be in this choir. Why? Because I was told once that when I, you know, graduated from school, I was going to have to go into teaching and have to lead choirs um, in my career. And I was like, I, no, I don't. I don't want to do that. And I don't have to. And why are you telling me that I have to? You know, it was stuff like that that was like really very limiting. Mm -hmm. And I even at one point found at a different, in a different um, department or different school within my university, a a course that was a jazz choir. And I was like, I'm actually really interested in learning jazz and they won't teach it to me in this department. But if I join this jazz choir, I'm like, that fits my choir requirement. And I get to explore a different genre. And I was told I couldn't do that. Um, later on in life, many years down the road, I came across postmodern jukebox. And if you all don't know what postmodern jukebox is, run out right now and go to their YouTube channel and find postmodern jukebox. But it is so cool. They're so awesome, right? And I, I don't know how Scott Bradley, who's a, the the leader of this band, got started. I, I think it has something to do with like doing piano renditions of uh, game uh, video game music. But at some point he hit upon the amazing idea of taking modern songs and re-orchestrating um, them in different styles, usually styles from the past. So you're talking about like, you know, uh, music that was popular in the 20s, um, older jazz standard type of orchestration, you know, whatever it is. And so then he, you know, refreshes the song in such a way that it, it feels like a new song, you know, and... Oh my gosh, it's so amazing. I'm and you know, not all the songs are to my taste or whatever, but there are a lot of times when like listening to Scott Bradley do these songs and and realizing that he has done something transformative to them. You know, it's not necessarily that like the old the the original version of the song is terrible or anything. No, the original version of the song is usually fine, but he has transformed them into something else and it's it's so wonderful. Like and 
of course, it really helps that he has all these great musicians. He has all these amazing singers that he works with. It's just, it's great. But I'm looking at that, and then I look at um, Zoe Keating, who is another favorite musician of mine, who she does this thing, and, and hopefully we'll have Zoe on the show, um, but she does this thing called, that that someone has labeled quantum cello, where she composes music that like works in these different layers and and all the layers are her playing the cello and she can do it live because like she'll play a line you know she'll play a phrase record it and then have that looping while she like does the next layer and whatever like watching her do this live is even more amazing than just listening to the music you know the recorded versions that she has so I, the reason I told you that story is to tell you this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I look at these musicians and I'm like, nobody told me when I was a young musician that I could do anything like that, that that was like an option for me. Nobody told me that if I had continued on with the clarinet, I could have joined like some very interesting, like, um, a marching band <laughs> like there's another like um emperor norton's stationary marching band also look them up like <laughs> they they play all this really amazing music and and sometimes i look at the clarinetists in that band i'm like i could have been you because but nobody was telling me that i had those options they were like right. you know all the people in, who were teaching me music were like no your options are these narrow 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 things and if you don't do these narrow 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 things you're never going to graduate from this you know, department. That's why I left the department. I went off to do something else. And the other things that I ended up doing were, you know, more on the like exploratory side. But I think that I, it was just because they were so horrible that I ran away from exploring music um, more than I could have. So what I, what made me think of this, you know, in Nyla's stories was just her thinking like, oh, I would love to do this. This is such a cool dream. But you can't make any money doing this. You can't make any money drawing things. And then she goes and she finds out that actually, yes, you can, because you can learn it in the school. You can learn animation and you can then like go on to do that in your life. Like you can draw for a living. Um, somebody open up that opportunity for her and her brain, you know, and, and it doesn't sound like there was anybody who was really like telling her that she couldn't. Like her mother wanted her to like, go to college and learn other things. But she didn't say like when she came home to say, mom, I want to, you know, be, become an animator. Her mother was like, no, you can't, you absolutely can't do that. You know, she didn't have that. So that, that also is, is one of those things that is, it can be serendipity. Like just having people t not telling you, oh, you can't do that. Or people somewhere, some along, somebody along the line saying, oh, yes, this avenue is open for you. These cool things you can do. Um, heck, I, when I found out about the job of Disney Imagineer, I was like, why didn't anybody tell me that that was a career option? Right. <laughs> you know? I yeah. I, I think about this a lot, especially right now as a freelancer and as someone who's like, you know, I've been and been doing this a while, but kind of the healthcare situation in this country isn't super great. And, you know, maybe I should look for a job and what, what would I do? And I still have no clue. So if you want to write me and tell me what I should do if I grow up, um, I, I'll, I'll take unsolicited, or I guess I'm soliciting internet advice. But I think part of the challenge is that, um, with this, the current state of technology, the things that people are doing now are not things that were conceived of that, you know, it wasn't a thing when I was in high school. Like, you know, I think about, oh gosh, uh, journalists. I, I think about m my friends like Jason Snell and Federico Vitici and, you know, these people who have built careers on, um, on journalism. Yes. But are now, now in this place where they're, they run websites for a living. Like they write their tech opinions and people subscribe to read about that. And that is like a valid career choice. Um, it's a hard career choice, but it's something that people can do. And, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands, when I was in high school, that was not a thing. Like make a living by writing things on the internet. Who on earth can do that? And so many people do that now. Right. Um, 
And the same with things like Postmodern Jukebox. Before they came along, who was really taken seriously taking these modern songs and setting them to, you know, swing style and jazz style and, you know, whatever, 1950s popular music style? Nobody was doing that, you know? And instead of encouraging, and I I think this is one of... um, one of Nyla's points is like, so we encourage people to learn how to write to some degree. Um, if you've ever looked at an internet forum, I would, I <laughs> would, uh, say, you know, a lot of people don't write well, but everybody writes to some degree of competency. Right. And, but drawing is not one of the things that we're taught to do. Creative thinking is not something that is taught in schools. You can't test creativity, right? There's no standardized test for like how much imagination you have. Um, and so I've often said that that my school experience really acted to tamp down my creativity because you know, I was learned how I, I was learned how <laughs> I learned how to do math and I learned chemistry and I kind of learned how to put a resume together and I kind of, you know, but but I, I was not taught like it, 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 there was never a class that was like, OK, look at this picture and um, and write about what you what you feel when you look at it or look at this picture and write what you think the the people in the scene are doing. Um, look at this picture and and write the conversation that they're having or whatever that is. It doesn't have to be looking at a picture. Right. But our creativity in the U.S. school system is not fostered. Um, at all. And I think that's part of the reason why we do this podcast is um, one, again, and I've said this previously for me as a person who feels like creativity was really actively dragged out as I was taught to conform and kind of made to conform. Like, how do I get back in touch with that since I've spent so much time kind of stamping out uh, stamping out my creativity in in favor of doing what society told me to do when I was a child. Yeah, I mean, I I was lucky enough that I went to performing arts school, so so that particular thing wasn't a part of of my growing up. But I, if I hadn't gotten into that school, I wonder if that's what would have happened to me as well. You know, because yeah, I see that all the time that people's creativity are stamped out of them by schools and by their teachers and sometimes by their parents and other family, because then there's also that idea that like, you can't make a living off of whatever, as if making a living is the only thing that you should be thinking about. You should be thinking about feeding your soul, people feeding your soul. I think that's what's wrong with a lot of society right now is that we have a lot of people um, concerned with money and not as much concerned with what feeds them. If that distinction makes sense. Yep. It does. Yeah. It does make sense. So before we end this episode, I actually wanted to give Nyla a chance to talk about um, her two most recent books, um, How to Find a Fox and MFK. And I really love the story, actually, that she told about um, where How to Find a Fox comes from in her life. I knew I wanted a little girl, a fox, and a camera. And actually, I had shelved the story for a while because it just wasn't working. At a point, I just gave up up on it. I didn't think I'd ever be able to make it work. And then I was reading a blog post with an agent, and he was talking about what he looks for in picture books. And he mentioned conflict. And it suddenly hit me. I don't know why it didn't hit me before, because this is kind of a key element that every writing class teaches. But I realized, oh, this story didn't have conflict. That's what the problem was. <laughs> and so I went back to it and just like stripped everything away and said, okay, let's let's pick one through line. What is the story really about? And it came back to the little girl, the fox, and the camera. The girl wants to take a picture of a fox, and she has trouble getting the photo. I had that image of a girl just... Traping, traipsing through the woods. And it was really just supposed to be an exploration of the big, the great outdoors. But there's this fox that's all around her, but she can't see it. Um, so I grew up in the woods. 
And there was a time when we, my mother made a connection with this hunter that, that lived in the area and they kind of made a deal. Um, he would do odd jobs for her if he was allowed to hunt on our property. And she said, sure. So he set up a camera, like, I don't, I don't know hunting terminology, but he set up like a, you know, a shelter or something in a tree and there was a camera and the camera was motion, uh, motion operated. So anytime there was movement out in the woods, it would take pictures. And he sent us all these pictures of deer just all around our property at all times. And he told my mom once, um, yeah, they're, you know, they're deer just like in your yard all the time. And I was really surprised, you know, I was like, you know, you pull up, you pull up in the yard and there's nothing. You look around and there might be a couple of birds, a squirrel, but you don't see any deer. And he said, oh yeah, they're out there. You can't see them, but they can see you. And that always stuck with me, (laughs) you know, like, and it, and I thought to myself, it's not just deer. There, there have got to be wild animals in the woods around our house all the time and they know where we are, but we don't know where they are. And so that's, that's kind of what I wanted to like imbue in this story. And, and so that's why, you know, on every page, the little girl is looking for this Fox and the Fox is in plain sight, but she can't see it. I love that story. It's such a (laughs) cool story. Yeah. It's really great. And the, um, one thing that, um, Nyla didn't really mention in that. And I guess there was no point, there was no reason for her to mention it, but um, the little girl in how to find a Fox is a little black girl. And I only mention that because, you know, there are so few children's books that have children of color in them. And, and this is one of them. And so other than just like being a really cute story about a girl and a Fox and like the Fox is always like looking at her and she's like, where's this thing? Where's the Fox? Um, It's also great that like, she's a little black girl, just, because like the and it has no bearing on the plot <laughs> and it's just like in life so super cute i went to amazon and kind of looked at the couple of preview images that there were and she's so cute so cute yeah it's really awesome but and i love that i love that um you know i was i asked Nyla at one point you know what she really likes to draw she's like kids and animals i'm like well there you go <laughs> that makes sense and of course when you're yeah. a children's book author it's like oh yeah drawing kids and animals um but i i love that idea and and also that part of the story where she was saying you know she's reading the agent's blog and he was like conflict she's like oh right conflict um that also just reminded me of my own writing process because yeah I, of course like oh duh conflict but at the same time sometimes when you're when you're writing and you're working on something and it's not working and you get like kind of tunnel visiony about it, you're like, Oh, this can't work. And you want to flip a table and you want to leave it forever. Um, and you walk away from it for a bit. And then somebody is, you know, says something about some writing craft thing that's obvious. And you're like, Oh yeah, that's what's wrong. I didn't, I didn't do that thing. Sometimes it just takes like getting reminded <laughs> that you're like, Oh, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> that's what I forgot to do. I forgot to add characters. <laughs> It's a book full of angles. I don't... Weird. <laughs> and I think, too, people think of conflict as, like, you have to be... You have to have two characters fighting. That's not what conflict means necessarily. It's just... There has to be something to overcome. Otherwise, it's just, like, a diary. You know, like... Today, Susie ate soup. <laughs> it was super tasty. She made the mm-hmm. soup with tomatoes. Like... Who who cares? Like there 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 has to be something to to overcome, right? Like, are there any stories that don't have some kind of obstacle? I mean, there are Probably. some. Probably there are some, and there's like there's different ways of of doing conflict. I mean, I like this one because like the conflict is she wants to take a picture of the fox. The fox doesn't want to be seen. They're not fighting. You know, so the fox isn't stalking her. That would be a completely different story and it probably wouldn't be a kid's book. It would be a weird story, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, like the the 
the main character, the little girl, she desires something. The fox desires something else, something different, contrary to her desire. So, so yeah, it's like that's it's that is an interesting form of of conflict. So that's really cool. Um, the other book that she she talked about her most most recent publication uh, is a graphic novel called The MFK. Oh, I I just wanted an action story about a black girl where the female characters kicked butt and didn't lose all the time in every single fight. So I read a lot of manga when I was a teenager and I was really into shonen manga specifically. So like Naruto, One Piece, Shaman King, uh, Bleach when it came out a little later. And they all kind of had the same theme. Like the stories were all about boys, of course, because it's shonen and shonen means boy. But whenever there was a girl character, even if they were a fighter, they kind of sucked. Like the rules seem to be if they go up against a guy, they're going to lose. And I love these stories so much, but I kept thinking, gee, I want to read something that's just like this, but it's about a girl. And So I kind of started playing around with this idea and thought to myself, well, if we're going to do a female main character, we might as well make her black too, because there aren't any stories like that, really. So yeah, that was my jumping off point. Hooray. And and this kind of goes back to what we talked to Nisi Shaw about when we were talking about um, Everfair and how sometimes the best art comes out of somebody saying something is wrong with with this thing with this genre with this you know type of story whatever and i am going to write something that fixes that thing that i find to be annoying about it or whatever and then brilliant things come so yeah and isn't isn't the main character in mfk also deaf i think i read so she's a deaf girl of color that i don't know cuz i haven't read it yet it's on my shelf according to amazon the amazon blurb it is so um, I also, I, I appreciate that because there aren't a lot of empowering stories, which I'm assuming this is based on, you know, kind of what I've been able to glean just reading about it online. Um, <laughs> but like empowering stories for people who are, you know, hearing impaired or vision, vis- have impaired vision. Um, so I, I appreciate that too from her. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Like as I said, I haven't read it yet because it is on my very large uh, to be read pile. But it's actually like near the top of my to be read pile because a black woman wrote it, and that's just how I roll. Um, <laughs> uh, but like I'm I'm also like trying to get through a, a bunch of Octavia Butler and Karen Lord um, as well. So there's there's a lot of things that are on my list. But but that was the reason why I picked it up. Like you know also because I know Nyla, but I'm pretty sure that had I just come across that book without even knowing that Nyla wrote it, when I was like, there's a black girl, look, this is it. Mm, let yeah. me just, let me just slide this on over into my bag of books here. Um, cause that's, that's my jam. So I really love that. Awesome. Well, um, there were a couple of other things that, uh, I talked to Nyla about and we may like end up sliding some of those things into a members only podcast. We'll we'll see. Um but those are like the the main points that I, I wanted to discuss with her. I mean, because like I could talk to Nyla for like 17 hours and probably like come up with 12 different podcasts about all the mm-hmm. all the interesting things she has to say. I would be really interested um potentially in having her back to talk about or having someone on to talk about children's publishing and traditional children's publishing and, um, you know, maybe someone who isn't an artist. So if you have a story, how do you find an artist? How do you find an agent? How do you find a publisher? Like all of that stuff I think is super interesting. And it's also more complicated than I would have imagined before I started learning more about publishing, uh, low these many years ago, probably like 10 years ago. Uh, but yeah, she's she's great. I'm so glad that she was able to make time and, and come on the show. Yep. Um, and so I want to thank Nyla for, for talking with me. And also I'm going to let her tell you about where you can find her on the internet because you know you now want to follow her and read all of her stuff yeah, and, you do. and see what all of her adventures are. My website is nylamagruder.com. It's just my name. It has links to all my social media, but if you go on any like social media site and look up Nylawful, 
N-I-L-A-F-F-L-E. That's me. Hilarious. I approve. I approve of my lawful. <laughs> that will all be in the show notes. So if you're driving, you can you can find her. Cool. All right. Well, that is the end of this episode. So we I still guess... don't have an outro. <laughs> well, so we kind of do. Oh, we kind of so, do. Okay. <laughs> As always, you can, you know, find the links in the show notes. Um, you can find our... Uh, the show on Twitter at Originality FM. You can find me on Twitter at Aline and Tempest at Tiny Tempest. Until next time, start drawing and channel some creativity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>